me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. And from Psalm 145. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all those who are bowed down. Of all wait upon you, O Lord, and you give them their food. You open wide your hand and fill all things living with plenteousness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, merciful in all his works. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him, to all who call upon him faithfully. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry will help them. The Lord preserves all those who love him, but he will destroy all the ungodly. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. To you, Lord Christ. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out among about the third hour, he saw that others standing idly in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? 
they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, would you open up our hearts to your truth and by your spirit make it clear to us. In Christ's name, amen. Scripture tells us to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most memorized uh, verses in all the Bible. Um, And Paul, in this part of Philippians, is giving a speech uh, a speech of courage. It's about courage. It's, it's a grand speech meant to um, get everybody's blood flowing and say yes and amen and let's do it kind of thing. It's meant to embolden its hearers and its readers. It is a, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom kind of speech, right? The kind of thing you hope you hear your general or your coach or someone to push you on and to take that hill or to make that basket or to finish the day well, right? That's what it is. Um, But we treat Christianity sometimes like it's a let me try it out kind of thing rather than giving our all. This week, um, Adam took me to my first boxing class. Uh, I went on Thursday, and I, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect. Um, I was thinking the coach would ask me at some point, maybe early on, what experience do you have with boxing? And I would have been able to say proudly, well, I, I fought Daniel Healy in the second grade. Does that, does that count? Because that's about my own experience. And even when, look at, when I look back, it's kind of fuzzy. Was he on top of me, waylaying me, or was I punching him, or was I just watching him do that to another kid, and I imagined myself in that position? I don't know. I can't remember, it was second grade. But none of that happened, and when I got there, what ended up happening was, um, he didn't ask me any questions, it was just time to get ready. So uh, Adam taught me how to wrap my hands and then put the gloves on, and once those gloves on came on and I saw the ring, I said, oh, we're just gonna go right into this. And there was just an assumption of like, once that happened, once the gloves come on, there was really no turning back. Now, there wasn't really any heavy sparring going on, and yes, I got punched in the face, but it was really by my own gloves, not so much the other person. But once you put the gloves on, you're, you're committed. You know, you think about those, those horrible times when men would have to go to a line on a battlefield, and once the, the horn was raised and the, the, the line started to march forward, there's no turning back. It's just buckle up gird your loins, stand firm kind of moment. And yet so many people treat Christianity like we can just test it out, like people test out Buddhism. 
or test out Reiki or read a couple psychology books and say, okay, I think I got the gist. And that's, that's not what we read at all. Instead, we read stuff like this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I love this quote from Chesterton. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that is true for so many. So many people that, and I see more and more, I'm less shocked by it, but people who seemingly were Christian and went to church all their lives and then yet when there's conflict in the world or in their lives, they they fall away. I think last week we had the parable of the sower that is often read and is haunting to all of us. But this kind of memorable verse that you and I take to heart, to live as Christ and to die as gain, we do it because it single-handedly sums up the attitude of a faithful Christian, of what we're actually called to be and to do, obviously exemplified in Christ himself, but in heroes of the faith like Paul and others. It is the sort of statement that, if true of our own faith, would prepare us even for the ultimate test, which is martyrdom. Those stories and those like them are encouraging and emboldening to us, but probably and hopefully none of us here will have to suffer through that kind of death, that kind of test. But the same kind of foundation, the same kind of brick-by-brick building of faith that allows somebody to hold on to the faith even in the face of death is the same kind of stuff you and I need to be involved in now. Allowing our faith to be built brick-by-brick that we can truly say, like Paul did, for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. It means that all of our lives are wrapped up in that, that singular statement So everything that we do is viewed in that light. And the implication, of course, is, and he gets there in one of these verses here that we'll read in a moment, is this. That because of that, because to live is Christ and to die is gain, you and I ought to live a life worthy of that calling. Even if you don't die for the faith on some great hill with the whole world watching and asking you, do you recant your faith? And you say, no. Jesus is Lord, and then you're killed, and next moment you're, oh, with the angels, which would be amazing. Or you're on some battlefield, or whatever. If that doesn't happen, you're still called to live a life worthy of the calling. And there will be little moments like that throughout your life, where you're called to this moment of testing, and the courage is asked to be drawn up, and you do take a stand, for to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really excited about this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And Paul actually goes through a little bit here in this scripture that I want to share with you that I think is important. He kind of demonstrates a little bit of what this manner of life looks like for him, the distinctions of that life, and then, of course, how it's possible at all. Like, how do you and I live this way in light of conflict? And we're going to see that throughout this passage, if you haven't noticed it already, this word conflict comes up up over and over again. You and I are in a life of conflict just because of the gospel. The fact that we say Jesus is Lord calls into question all the authorities that we encounter in the world. So let's jump in. What is this manner of life for Paul? 
Let's look again at verses 21 and beyond. He says, for to me is, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. For Paul, this manner of life is a life with one singular priority. It's Christ. Um, uh, I've, a couple of times in my life, especially when I was younger, I was challenged by mentors, teachers, whatnot, that we should have our priorities in order. That we, we don't want them to be disordered because then, you know, you have a struggle. Um, when things come in conflict, you're like, wait, what am I supposed to be prioritizing right now? And this is true with time, energy, finances, all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of my favorite movies was City Slickers. And the whole movie essentially is about, okay, what is your priority? You know, that one thing, right? But what I love about that is it truly is one thing. It's not a list of priorities. It's one thing that everything else is subservient to. So it's not like a, an ordering of priorities as, a, as much as it is one priority from, every, from which everything else kind of takes its ownership, takes its cue. I saw this illustration once, and I want to share it with you because it stuck with me. One of my old pastors um, uses use this frequently, actually. It got kind of annoying, but it's kind of helpful. And it's this idea of just a bike wheel uh, with spokes and the hub in the middle. And he was just saying, it's very, it's very simple. And he was a cyclist, as you can imagine, so this was helpful for him. Mine's a little dusty. You get my impression of cycling. But anyway, that the hub is the priority, that one thing. And everything else, even important things like your family, your career, your friendships, your home, your finances, all are on the outside and they take their cue from the hub. This is, this is upon which your entire bicycle moves, the axle, this space right here. If you were to take something that was, you shouldn't put in the middle, like your family, and you made that your hub, this is what happens to your wheel. <laughs> Anytime you try to roll that thing, it's, it's going to, well, it's going to hurt. It's going to mess up. And even if you try to find some space somewhere on the spoke, it's going to make everything askew and wrong. No, the one thing has to be the one thing and everything else finds its cue. And scripture tells us it has to be Christ. So when we think about, when we think about our priority, not priorities even, but our priority for, for Paul, this manner of life means Christ, period. It's even true as he says, for to me, uh, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You're like, wait, but the second thing is gain. It's only gain because now he's with Christ. So no matter what happens for Paul, whether he lives or dies, whatever he does, he does to the Lord repeats that in Colossians chapter 3 in a different way. So there are two ways to live, really, is what we're saying here. A life of a singular priority or a life of conflict. A life of disruption. A life of singularity rolls along with ease, even when you hit hills and bumps and gravel. But a life of conflict gets nowhere. You can't move. 
So that, that's as clear as a bell what Paul is saying here is that this manner of life that he's referring to, it is passionate. It is conflicting in the sense of like you, you engage in conflict, but it's not conflicting in his heart. No, there is one single priority and it is Christ, whether in life or in death. So how can we know the difference between a singular priority life and one with conflicting priorities, a life full of conflict? Well, it's a life of boldness. Paul was writing this in prison. I don't know if you knew that. This might have been one of his last letters. He was probably in prison in Rome at this time, which if you know anything about the history of Paul, we don't really know. There's no, there's no recording in the Bible, for example, how he died. There's rumors, but Rome was it. That was it. And of all his missionary journeys, one, two, three, three B, whatever, he's in Rome, and that's, that's the last place he'll be. Probably in his 60s, he's lived a, an important life, and he's writing this in a place of conflict, of contention. So he was in prison once before. Do you know where? In Philippi. And the Philippians know it. When he started this church, it was the most eclectic group of people, a little bit like us. And this lady who was a merchant, you had uh, these people by the river who were praying, you had this jailer and his whole household who are part of this church. Why? Because Paul was imprisoned, I think that I remember this right, for uh, exercising a demon from some wealthy man's servant and interrupting his wealth, thrown in prison, and then when the doors opened, he encouraged everyone not to get up and run because it would have placed the jail um, uh, guard his own life in danger because if his let the prisoners escaped, he was a dead man. And because of that, the jailer was moved and convicted and said, tell me about this God you've been singing about. And he was part of the church in Philippi. So when he says that I'm in conflict here or I'm in contention or there's a war being waged or he implies about his current situation, they know exactly what he's going through. And he tells them earlier on in the book of Philippians that the people that he's in prison with and all the people who are outside of prison who know he's in prison are all encouraged. And so this boldness, oh, and I'll say one other thing. When the, when the apostles in, in the book of Acts get uh, persecuted and they pray, do you know what they don't pray for? They don't pray for these persecutions to go away. No, they pray for boldness. And that's what Paul does. When he was in jail in Philippi, he didn't pray for escape. He prayed for boldness when the doors were open. Let me stand. And he did the same thing in Rome. And people didn't shirk or hide away from the tough language of the gospel. It can be tough, especially to a world who has no morality, no understanding of God, no understanding of right and wrong. That even saying there is a right and wrong is a bold statement, but they continued to pray for that boldness. Courage is contagious. This passionate life that he lived is contagious. Billy Graham said as much when he said, when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. It reminds me of that movie Glory when uh, the, the, the team, the squadron, whatever, I was in the military, are you know, bunkered in behind a hill in a trench warfare and they're just stuck and something has to shift. And the captain, the officer, realizes if anybody's going to take that next hill, 
it's going to be us and somebody has to lead. And so finally he just jumps up and calls for the charge and he goes first and everybody follows, which is just awesome. Bullets and bombs flying everywhere and you just see men charging the hill. There's not a better scene. And so, so courage is contagious. People follow. But here's what also he says, and he makes it clear that the distinctions of this manner of life are not just passion and this kind of courage, but it actually has things you can see. So if you, if you would, turn to look at verses 27 and 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? So that whether I come and see you in, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are. Here they are. And they're just, conveniently, there's three of them. It's good for my sermon. And you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that you're not frightened in anything by your opponent. So there they are. This is what it looks like to live a manner of life that Paul is talking about. To live as Christ and to die is gain. That you're standing firm, that you're striving side by side, and that you're fearless. Standing firm. I mean, this is, this is clear about in our world right now. I know that we're not called to defend our faith at a cross or in a death or in a gas chamber or anything like that, but we are called to stand firm in the truth of God's word. Striving side by side, not isolated. Sure, sure, there are champions in the Old and New Testaments that we hold up, but even David had his mighty men. And even Christ, who is our champion, is not, and nor was he ever, alone. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally in perfect community, the lover, the beloved, and love itself. And then being fearless. Like I said, courage is the sticking point here. I've even preached a whole sermon on courage, and I could totally do a rabbit trail here. But courage is that one virtue upon which all the other virtues get its strength. Like, what good is character if when things are tough, you sell yourself out? What good is purity if when the temptation comes, you stain yourself? What good is temperance if when hungry or thirsty, you indulge yourself? What good is patience if when things don't go your way, you yell and fret and worry? Have courage. I think there are signs we don't live like this. I mean, if, if, the, if the signs are standing firm and standing side by side, struggling side by side and being fearless, then the opposite would be signs that you're not living a life like this, a manner worthy of the calling. We're easily susceptible. If we're not standing firm, that means we're easily susceptible to enemy influence, being deceived and having to be called out by, I don't know, maybe your pastor. <laughs> your, morality, your morality seems to fit too well and too easily with the world's. Or what about not standing side by side? That one's easy. Disunity or isolation. Attempting to do it on your own. I know there's this American mentality, this aura around people who could stand on their own. There's like kind of a, well, that's appealing. But again, the truth of it is, is that there's only champions in God's kingdom. We're all doing this together. There's nobody alone. There's nobody isolated. That's how the enemy likes to pick you off. Like a weak or sick animal, you are not part of the flock anymore. He's after you. No, we stand side by side. Or finally, 
He asks us not to be fear our enemies. Well, of course, then a lack of courage, the opposite of being fearless. We routinely fall away from the challenge our virtue and our virtues call us into. What do you do? What if I just pointed you out? What if you just started feeling like you're squirming in your pew? I am too. You're not alone. There's so much weakness in us. I mean, the, the apostles themselves, when it came down to the sticking point, Peter said, I'll die for you. He couldn't even stop from denying Jesus a few hours later. I'd like to think that I would be that officer on the hill leading that army, but I am afraid that I might be the one of the ones who are like, I hope this goes well. I wrote this prayer down for the conflicted Christian. I would say one thing you can do is offer up a prayer. King Eternal, grant me three things. Keenness to discern your will, wisdom to understand it, and courage to follow where it leads. I'll read it again. King Eternal, grant me three things. Keenness to discern your will, wisdom to understand it, and courage to follow where it leads. This is how it's possible. How do you live this life of boldness? How is it even possible? You actually have to go back. Because in in verses, um, where is it? I think it's 16 and 17. I'm sorry, I should have underlined this. I've got, actually I have too many things underlined and it makes it more difficult. Ah, here it goes, verse 19, all right. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The, the power that Paul gets to live a manner worthy of the calling, to be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain, comes from prayer and the Holy Spirit. This was never about your, uh, your singular ability. None of us win for ourselves our salvation. And our lives aren't lived in such a way worthy of the calling because of our own strength. So though the psalmist says, be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord, it it is our hope in the Lord that makes this work. A lot of you know the story of Troy and in Greek uh, history, a little bit of mythology, actually maybe some truth back there. It goes back in ancient times, but there was a man in Troy named Hector. He was the champion of Troy. And he was... By all accounts, the one warrior that all the people in Troy looked to and said, we will have success because of him. Even his name means to have or to hold. Hector held Troy's future in his hand. He could not be defeated. But, what, but then the Greeks came. And there was one man Hector did fear. And of course, we know the story, right, of Achilles. You've heard it before. But Hector said, at least Virgil has him saying, Could Troy have stood by human arm? It should have stood by mine. But it didn't. Achilles took him down in singular combat. And the truth is is that you and I do not hold anything together. The reality is only Christ does that. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is a before all things, and in him all things hold together. The reason Paul can say confidently to live is Christ and to die is gain because he is our champion and he will hold our life together. There is no other. There's certainly not you and there's certainly not me. And so the challenge here now is, okay, so how do we, how do we emulate Paul? Well, first you must begin by recognizing that Jesus is your savior. He is your Lord. This is not, this faith, this walk, this manner of life is not done by your own strength, but only by and through him. Christianity is not one of those things you can just dabble in and think, I'm gonna follow this way of life. It's like trying to live like a Christian without going to Christ himself. It's not possible. And so the first thing that has to happen is the Lord has to remake you, to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to make you a new creature. And only then could you even attempt to say something like what Paul has said. But the power to live that way begins with the grace that God gives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A reminder that the apostles couldn't do it on their own. Paul could not do it on on his own, and neither can you or I do it on our own. To live as Christ and to die as gain from the beginning to the end and everything in between So this life that we're called to live, worthy of that calling, must be done by prayer and the Holy Spirit. To seek the Lord, to stand firm in in his truth, to be with one another. And don't be afraid what the Lord throws at you. Even Jesus says, what does it matter if they can take your life? (laughs) You'll get another one. And this one will last forever. So I invite you, don't wait for martyrdom, but begin the foundation building of your faith brick by brick that you can face the enemy day in, day out and say no to him and yes to Christ. Will you come and live that kind of life? To live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray together and we ask for your strength. Because on our own, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we are nothing. But with your love and with your spirit, you empower us to do things we could never do. And it begins with salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would, for those of us who don't know you, that you would make us new. That even going down into the depths of our heart and soul, that you would make us a new creation that we would be able to boldly stand and say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We are not afraid. We are together in this and we will stand firm on your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Will you please stand?